Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Amina Diaby had been working as a temp at one of Toronto's biggest industrial bakeries when in September of 2016, her hijab was caught in a machine and she was strangled. She was a refugee trying to save money for nursing school. Last fall, the Toronto star's Sara Mujtahidzadeh went undercover for a month at the same factory and then spent a year investigating and writing the story. It was a kind of meticulously reported project that sheds light on working conditions and the way that labor is under pressure. 23-year-old Diaby died in the accident. She had gotten the job through a temporary employment agency. It was the kind of work that the star described as coming with little training and low pay and sometimes is dangerous. Here's an excerpt from that report. Supervisors shouted us to wake up. They shouted us to move faster, pinch nicer, work harder. No one talks through the noise and exhaustion. The factory relies heavily on temporary help agency workers. Its health and safety record is checkered. Three temps have died here, or at Fiera's affiliated companies, since 1999. Across the province, more and more people are relying on temp agencies to find work. When they do, statistics show they are more likely to get hurt on the job. Now, one thing great reporting does is highlight the gaps that everyone else isn't filling. It's so commonplace to complain about the decline in the quality of journalism, and part of that is just a numbers game. 
I mean, it's just a fact that there are fewer reporters today than there were 20 or 25 years ago. That's well-worn discussion territory, and I, I don't want to get into it. Instead, I'd like to explore how one particular kind of journalism has had to adjust to the rapid changes in this industry, and that is labor journalism. Now, labor reporting was once so established that it was actually a violation of the norm not to have someone covering the beat. And if you were a serious establishment, it was just a given that you had someone or often multiple people whose job it was to cover the tensions and the events concerning labor. And that included documenting the history of that tension, not just reporting the conflict at hand, whatever it was, but also providing the context for the years leading up to and surrounding an event like a strike or a lockout. The decline of the labor beat is not new. It actually predates all of this fancy internet stuff. Here's an excerpt from the Canadian Media Guild's resource on labor reporting. It addresses this exact thing. Full-time labor reporting has been replaced with business coverage and, quote, workplace journalism that generally covers how white-collar workers can improve their productivity and how managers can wring more out of their employees. Take, for example, this recent Globe headline, A Productivity Guru's Personal Organization System. Those stories have become pretty familiar. You've definitely seen them around. As newsroom resources get tighter and tighter, labor was one of the first beats to get dialed back, if not completely axed. Which is strange in an era where we increasingly spend the majority of our daily lives at work, especially in a modern world where the boundaries between work and personal life are dissolving for so many of us. And that means we should be talking about what work means more, not less. The decreasing work protections, the overburdened gig economy, the precarious employment contracts. Because the stakes of these conversations and the evolution of this coverage are high for so many people. Those people, by the way, tend to be society's most vulnerable anyway. They're women of color. They're immigrants. They're refugees. They're indigenous people. They're the working poor. So let's dive in to talk about the good, the bad, and the missing in action of labor reporting. Saar Mujtahidzadeh, the Toronto Star reporter responsible for that extraordinary investigation into temp work, will join me to talk about covering labor issues in 2018. But first, to get a sense of how much this coverage has changed, I'll speak with Rod Micklebrough, a labor reporter based in BC who spent 22 years of the Global Mail and covered labor for 16 years before that for publications like the Vancouver Sun. He now freelances for the TAI and recently wrote a book on the history of the British Columbia labor movement. That's coming up in a minute. Hey, it's Jesse again to let you know that this episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Rick O'Dell, Franklin Mendez, Zareen Kazmi, Jeff Slater, John Lott, Stephanie Dotto, Sue Frost, and Matt Baker. Hi, I'm Matt Baker, and I support Canada Land because I'm interested in hearing uncomfortable truths delivered with some wit and charm. I originally found Canada Land while looking for Canadian alternatives to the likes of John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, and Bill Maher. I can't say I found exactly what I was looking for, but I'm certainly in love with what I've found. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. 
It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. How's it going, Rod? <coughs> the glass, glass is always half empty. That's, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, no, it's the out. Well, no, it, it, I get two colds a year, and this one's come on early, and I think, God, that's weird. It's so early. And then I find all these other people uh, I've also been suffering from colds, so I feel like we're part of a collective. I'm sorry that you have a cold, man. Uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk with us today. To start with, just tell me about being hired to specifically report on labor issues. What kind of stories did you cover? Well, I was very lucky. And uh, I got to the Vancouver Sun in 1973. I was quite young in the business, but I was I landed at the Sun. And initially, I just did general news. And then uh, one day, they said, well, you're going to be uh, doing labor reporting. And uh, I was actually kind of happy with that coming out of the 60s and and struggles and and people fighting back. And I came from a family that was pro-union, so uh, that seemed great. But this was at the Vancouver Sun in 1973, and you may find this hard to believe. Not only did the Vancouver Sun have a labor reporter, it had two full-time labor reporters, two, count them, one on days and one on nights, and I was the night guy. And, you know, it was on the front page all the time. BC had a very militant, strong union movement, and they were creating news all the time, and I was fortunate to be able to cover it. And and most labor stories uh, are very dramatic because they involve, you know, workers fighting for their rights against entrenched management. It's simplification. Not not all the stories are like that, and there are nuances. But, you know, it it could be very dramatic. I I think one of the positive things of having a lot of labor reporters around is that you get to cover, not just in the case of the strike, but just in general, labor becomes a bunch of different things. Oh, absolutely. Um, you don't yeah. have to reduce, you know, reduce the idea of the labor movement to just one thing. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about, you know, for example, covering the, the tensions within the labor movement. I'm, I'm sure that reporters would have gone to cover big union conventions and report on uh, the fact that those even those union conventions didn't produce just one idea, but often it was a bunch of warring ideas um, that would end up, you know, one would end up winning over the other. Well, that's absolutely true. And as labor reporters, we really look forward to conventions because it was a great gathering place of all the labor leaders. I guess the, the tie here... Uh, 
an online publication, asked me to cover the BC Federation of Labour Convention a couple of years ago, and I was the only reporter there. It was very sad. Wow. In the old days, they had a big table for the media lined up at the front of the convention, and all the chairs were full. And uh, because it was considered that, uh, by the editors in those days that labor was important. And, you know, and sometimes uh, the conventions were really, really exciting. And uh, there was drama on the floor. Right. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine now that these kind of things were important, but they were important. See, the, the trouble with trying to, you know, compare that moment to what would happen now, for example, is you would just get, you know, a press release at the end of the day saying the, the convention happened and this was a position that was decided on. If it's covered at all, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, but without without those nuances that are really necessary to understand that there are certain people who are trying to pull the labor movement in, in different directions even now. Yeah. You know, the, the, the people that don't understand the labor movement think that it's this monolithic institution where shadowy people at the top pull strings and so on, and everybody blindly charges out on strike or, or something like that. But over time, of course, covering unions basically <laughs> disappeared, and you'd get occasional workplace issues covered if it was an interesting, or let's take a look at the new economy in terms of jobs and what kind of jobs are being created. But it but it really de-emphasized unions, which really are the only force that can really change things. Uh, union membership is, in fact, declining in this country. And so maybe, maybe editors kind of feel like that gives them the right and the license to focus less on unions. What do you think? Well, the decline actually started before that. Uh, and the decline in union memberships? Well, there was a decline, but it wasn't nearly like it is today. I mean, unions were still strong uh, relatively, you know, into the 1990s. And, you know, like editors felt uncomfortable. They they started to get into this weird thing where they thought labor was a vested interest. And why are we covering a vested interest? Of course, but covering business is fine. And also, the people that covered the business, say for the Vancouver Sun, were never really taken very seriously as reporters because no one cared about business anymore. It was all out in the streets and all these issues in a very rapidly changing uh, society. And then about, I don't know, late 1980s, 1990s, you know, more and more people started to get into mutual funds and so on. And suddenly the interest in business news just skyrocketed. And, you know, they wanted to put the labor reporters, if they were even there, back in the business pages. And the business pages were expanding uh, like nobody's business. And it just... Is that a bad thing? Well, you know, it's important to cover business, absolutely, because, you know, what goes on in the, in the business community and the economy is important. But uh, the emphasis on business reporting and is everywhere. And, you know, there's no regular labor reporting. It's all business. What's hopping on the stock market? What are the latest trends? You got to do this. You got to do that. I like this train. I thought, let's get into it, because to me... Labor reporting can be antagonistic to business interests, but not inherently, right? Like it can Well, I never be. regarded my um, stories as anti-business uh, unless uh, <laughs> business deserved it. That's exactly it. It's like it's a part of holding people to account, yeah. right? So newspapers have seemingly, you know, warmly embraced the idea of doing business news, um, not necessarily at the cost of, but definitely while pushing labor reporting a little bit out or giving it less space. Like stock tips are fine. How company X is doing to try to benefit their shareholders, to me, it's fine. I don't mind that coverage. But when you put that up against, you know, journalism that is a nuisance for business, it, it seems clear that business interests kind of won. 
Oh, there's no, there's no, no doubt about that. And uh, another thing that's happened, of course, is that uh, I was a night labor reporter at The Sun, is you could get these employer uh, negotiators and representatives on the phone and have long talks with them and get to know, know them as people. Now you never get a business person on the phone. You get their, their communications guy uh, who might send you an email or, or just you know, never really answer a, a serious question because there's only so much he's allowed to say. So there's a real control of the message that's out there and, and you don't get any real honest responses. And uh, it wasn't like that in the old days. They knew they had to be part of the newspaper story because labor would be in there and they wanted their point of view out there and not just an emailed statement uh, full of corporate speak. Now, one of the most common ways now that uh, people might come across labor reporting is reading a story about a strike. Yeah. But the problem with that is those stories are most of the time reduced to here's the thing that happened without the proper historical context, like without the tension history between employer and employee. Um, a strike is not, or at least it shouldn't be, uh, a general assignment reporter story. You know, I just shake my head at at the superficial reporting of labor disputes because they don't understand how negotiations work at all. I mean, there's a science to collective bargaining and to negotiations. Uh, they work sp in specific ways. And that's the great thing about BEATS is you as amass all this knowledge so that when something happens, you can put it into a context. You know, like I remember a, rep a young reporter telling me she was covering a labor dispute. And so she's got the company line and the union line. And she said, well, who am I supposed to believe? And, you know, it, that's not that's not the issue. You try to understand the dispute and talk to people. You can even talk to them off the record to see what lies behind the, the dispute. Both sides have points of view. And uh, it's very sad because, you know, there are still labor disputes and people deserve good coverage. Can you think of a, can you think of a recent story that really could have used the benefit of having that background? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, there's this uh, strike out in uh, Gander, Newfoundland, where the union has been uh, at some aerospace plant or something like that, and uh, they've been on strike for 20, actually, sorry, not a strike, a lockout for 21 months, uh, Unifor, and the company has hired who I call strike breakers and not replacement workers. They are strike breakers. Uh, replacement workers is a total euphemism. And uh, the union controversially took pictures of some of these scabs and uh, posted it on Facebook. So this was this huge uproar about this and an invasion of privacy, all this kind of, all oh, the unions, horrible thugs, you know, this is the sort of thing that have killed unions. I mean, and the reporters that have reported it, I mean, they don't have a context to what the use of strike breakers does to a labor dispute or the fact that the uh, it, it was in the story, but it's not wasn't really emphasized. Twice the employer had been found guilty of unfair labor practices. I mean, this is a nasty employer that wanted to get rid of its union, you know, and so the reporting didn't really reflect that context. I've seen the Newfoundland strike that you're you're talking about and the coverage of it, and uh, one of the one of the tension points was that the union was, you know, posting that video on Facebook and Twitter, right. and people were upset with this. Now that's 
I, the, the, the idea of a union identifying people who cross a picket line is very old, right? It's like, very that's old. A, that's a well-established uh, union tactic, but it hasn't Called really scabless. adapted very well. Yeah, of course, but it hasn't adapted very well to social media because when you post it on Facebook, it's sort of, it's a little bit different than just posting it in the local community, for example. And so I'm, I'm interested in the ways that the coverage of that story have completely overlooked the history uh, of unions doing this practice. I, I completely agree. And I, I uh, actually know one of the reporters who covered it. And she did a fine job. I mean, I was able to figure out what was going on in that dispute from her story. But it didn't have that context or nuance exactly as you say. You know, I, I emailed her and, and not in a critical way, but saying scab lists have been around forever. I mean, there was an incredibly bitter dispute at the Vancouver province newspaper out here in 1946 where they, they took pictures of the scabs and listed their addresses and had their pictures. And it was, but it wasn't social media. You see, it was their union newsletter or however they circulated it. Uh, but you're right too, though. Social media is different. There's no question about it. But the issue is the same. And it has that context. And again, the stories haven't reflected why unions get and union members get so angry about strike breakers. Right. What are your thoughts on how the beat has changed so that, you know, some other things are also put on the plate of people who look into labor issues? Well, I mean, in the mainstream media, it's changed that there aren't any labor reporters full-time. So <laughs> that's a pretty dramatic change. And But I, I would have to say that the workplace issues now are very, very important and in some ways almost more important than unions, although unions are definitely part of that and unions are going to have to come to grips with it. What, what do you think we lose when we have less of this reporting? How does that affect people on a day-to-day basis? Well, there's less understanding of people taking a stand and the problems that workers face. I mean, there's a nuance and a perspective to all these very complicated issues. And, uh, you know, the public has to understand them. And right now, the public, as a generalization, doesn't understand them. And it's more and more a factor of our daily lives. And uh, it cries out for reporting. Rod, like... uh all great labor reporting, you've given us a lot of history and context, and that is exactly what we need to understand where we ended up. So thank you so much for uh, your thoughts. Okay. Thanks, my friend. Now, your your title is is work and wealth reporter for the Toronto yeah. Star. Uh, what, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, what, is, what does that mean? Like, mean? I, It's clearly an evolution of like labor reporting, yeah. but what, is it, what does it mean? Well, so it's sort of... Um, been an interesting experiment, I think, at the Star. So the idea initially, I think, was to sort of modernize the old labor beat, which was a lot more focused on kind of um, like union politics and that kind of thing, which is still important and interesting. It's just that there's a whole wealth of other stories out there that are also important. Um, and anyway, I wasn't around when the title was created, but I think what it was alluding to was that we need to look at work in general rather than just this old school conception of labor and and wealth is also tied into that because we're looking at um, income inequality and wealth distribution and how that impacts our communities um, so I think that's what the the job title was sort of flicking at if you look at my Twitter bio you'll see I just say that I report on workers issues and to me that's the most succinct way of summing up what I'm interested in and what I report on right and we're all workers in some capacity so that's really what the beat is about now when when newsrooms like 
you know, tinker with titles. It's really, you know, trying to capture some sort of zeitgeist about um, the way that a beat might be changing. Um, and so in this particular case, if they're trying to figure out what the new tensions are of how work is changing, what are some of those ways? Like, what are some of the ways that work has changed? Yeah, well, I mean, one major one, again, is the fact that um, a lot of people don't belong to a union anymore. You know, union density is really decreasing. So um, there's a need to really look at those workers who are particularly vulnerable and precarious because, you know, back back in the day, um, most folks, you know, if you worked in an auto factory or something and were unionized, your rights would be enshrined in a collective agreement. And um, with fewer and fewer people working in that kind of environment, it means more and more of us are accessing or dependent on basic employment laws. And the thing was that those laws until recently hadn't been updated for a very long time. So I think that's really the major shift is that more and more people are reliant on those bare bones, basic employment standards. What are some of the ways those are lagging behind? Oh, boy. Um, Well, some of the changes that were implemented recently, which may be on the chopping block now, um, were things like um, equal pay for equal work. So that was a major reform that was brought in. Um, So, for example, before the legislation, if you were um, a casual worker or a part-time worker or a temp worker doing the exact same job on the line beside someone who was permanent, you are not entitled to be paid the same wage despite the fact that you're doing the same job just based on your employment status. Um, So that was one thing that a lot of worker advocates had said, like, this is like the legislation does not prevent this kind of pay discrimination from happening. Um, And there's a bunch of other stuff that, that still hasn't being quote unquote fixed, you know, if you're a worker advocate, you would be asking for this to be changed. Um, For example, I think a lot of people in Ontario don't know that our basic employment laws don't prevent unjust dismissal. Um, Your employer can fire you for, for no reason. And, you know, if you have the resources, you can sue them if you think there's a constructive dismissal case or some other form of discrimination. Um, but but those basic protections of like your boss having to give you a reason for getting rid of you don't exist. I did not know that. Yeah. And then there's a whole bunch of other exemptions that we've written about at the Star, which, again, are still in place and, and haven't been changed, where certain professions are exempt from basic standards. Um, you know, the, some professions aren't entitled to the minimum wage. They're not entitled to overtime. They're not entitled to rest periods. Um, so I think there's about 88 special like rules and exemptions that affect certain professions, and they're not entitled to basic rights. Uh Wow. First of all, I didn't I didn't know that. Uh, I'm excited to ask you about one of the big projects that you did last year, which is that you went undercover in one of Toronto's biggest industrial bakeries. This was a place where one woman, Amina Diaby, um, a 23 year old, died in an accident. You went undercover for a month to do this. And the whole story took you about a year to report. Um, Tell us about that project. What did you find? Yeah, that project was sort of um, the culmination of a bunch of stories that I'd been working on. At that point, I'd been on this beat for about three years. And and over that time, um, you know, I'd heard time and time again from temp agency workers um, who 
were very precariously employed and didn't feel comfortable necessarily speaking on the record, but who said that when they would get sent to a factory or a warehouse that the most dangerous work would be dumped onto them. And I knew in the U.S. that there had been some investigative work on that topic and that the data there had already proved that, yes, temp agency workers are more vulnerable to accident and injury than other Um, kinds of workers. So I wanted to find out if the same thing was happening in Canada. And I also um, wanted to understand why. Why are they more vulnerable? And um, it just so happened that I started poking around. I read through hundreds of court bulletins and I found this factory that had come up on a couple of occasions where temp agency workers had died um, in industrial accidents. And I started requesting their health and safety records and finding that, you know, there had been hundreds of violations. And then in the midst of all that, um, Amina Diaby died. Um, and yes, she was a, she was another temp agency worker. She died before? She died while she, you were? While I was doing this research. And, and that was when we kind of just started to have the discussion of, is this a story where we should go undercover and really find out what the dynamics are? And um, and yeah, I mean, I think it really illustrated the vulnerabilities that these kinds of workers face. I mean, I got about five minutes health and safety training um, in this enormous industrial facility. Um, and, you know, as a temp agency worker, like many other workers, you, you know, you, you're not entitled to you know, any kind of unjust dismissal protections. So your employer can really just say, like, you're not wanted here tomorrow. Right. Um, so it's hard to advocate for yourself on the job and refuse work that that is unsafe. Um, and, you know, this story was, was about this one factory. Or it was placed in this one factory. But, you know, this isn't, it's not a one-off, like, any a lot of factories that you might drive by on the 401 this could be what is going on inside this kind of story is necessarily about uh, about vulnerable people people who end up um, having to rely on temporary agency work who are the kinds of vulnerable populations who end up with jobs like these that we don't end up covering enough um, so people of color, racialized Canadians, new Canadians are more likely to be represented. They're more heavily concentrated in precarious jobs. And, you know, I think that, you know, the systemic racism and discrimination in the job market is, is a big part of that. But, you know, it, I think it's also important to remember that this is happening to people in your community. You know, when I worked at Fiera Foods, the factory, um, there were a lot of people just like me who grew up in Canada, first generation Canadians, you know, trying to get an education, but weren't able to find a stable job. And that's how they ended up at Fiera. You know, it could be your kid when they graduate high school. It's the tough job market to be coming of age in. And you know, more and more people are finding themselves looking for work this way. Do you think there'd be more public anger about uh, the precarity and the dangers of these jobs if people knew more about them? Yeah, I think if if people saw them firsthand, uh, yes, I do. I also think if the people who were doing them look different, right. then yeah, probably there would be more outrage. But I think in some quarters there is still... Um, this sort of mindset that 
some people should just be grateful for a job and grateful to be here. And, you know, those people are producing something valuable for our society. Their their labor is making something valuable for our society. And, and I also think that um, it's important to look at the broader social consequences of having people in jobs that um, don't allow them to have a disposable income um, that create enormous health problems and strains on our healthcare system. I mean, I think about my parents when they first immigrated, they, you know, they worked in a factory as well, but they were able to sort of build a life and a career for themselves and, you know, create a middle-class life. And that traditionally has been the backbone of our society are these middle-class jobs. And those are disappearing. Now, you wrote uh, in that investigation that the use of temp agencies limits companies' liability for accidents on the job. Um, can you say to what extent uh, factories might be going to, you know, they're not using temp agencies to just uh, fill some vacancies. They're kind of using them as a part of a larger strategy. Yeah, I think that's what's really changed about the temp world is that, you know, we used to think of temp agencies as filling, you know, a mat leave or, you know, someone has gone from the office for six months or on yeah. holiday. Um and um, what's really changed is that some companies are using permatemps, um, so folks who are in the same temporary job for years on end. I mean, I met people like that at Fiera, and the, and there's a financial incentive there because um, previously, if that worker got injured on the job, um, the injury at the workers' compensation board would be ascribed to the temp agency, not the workplace where it actually happened. So it's not going to show up on your record at the compensation board and your premiums aren't going to go up. So that's a huge financial incentive to use temps. Now, the last government um, did did change that in, in the reforms that they introduced. So they made both the temp agency and the workplace where the worker gets injured liable when an injury happens. Again, if our new government decides to revoke those changes, then it will go back to the past system where, again, this financial incentive is really there. Now, reporting on a story like this, um, undercover for a month, you're seeing a lot of the same faces the same day. What's What's the emotional toll of reporting on a story like that? Yeah, it was it was a very hard month. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a physically taxing job, um, but the hardest part was really forming relationships with people and not being able to be honest about why I was there. Um, you know, I tried to um, stick to the truth as much as I possibly could, and I tried to report it as ethically as possible in the sense that I tried not to ask leading questions or, you know, engage people in a way that would later make them feel uncomfortable. Obviously, we, we didn't identify anyone who I who I worked with. Um, but I, I really tried to just be there and observe and listen and let things unfold around me. And I think that was the best I could do in, in those circumstances. Um, and, you know, obviously, I hope I, I did justice to to what was going on around me. What are some of the misconceptions about covering labor? Do people think your job is just a, like, rag on capitalism? <laughs> um, no one's ever said that to me before, but maybe they're privately thinking it. I don't know. <laughs> um, but you know what? I think, like, 
if you look at the whole spectrum of media coverage, there's, you know, we have a business section in every newspaper that's standard. Um, we've got, like, usually most publications will have numerous business reporters. Um, and it's very rare to have a labor reporter. So um, I think that balance is necessary. I think that workers' issues deserve visibility. Um and I think that a key part of journalism is like using your space as a journalist to hold people who are powerful and have access to the corridors of power accountable and to also create a space for people who don't have access to the corridors of power to have their issues heard. You know, otherwise we're not really doing our job as sort of, I guess, the fourth estate or, you know, a check on, on the powerful. So I, I kind of see the beat as fitting into, into our kind of core mandate as, as journalists. See, I, I asked Rod this question uh, earlier, but, but I'm curious about your take. So labor reporting can be, it doesn't have to be, but it can be antagonistic to business interests. Um, not inherently, but the work is holding people to account. So the possibility of that antagonism is obviously there. So newspapers seem super thrilled, super jazzed to cover business, right? Like they will make lots of space for innovation coverage, whatever that is. Um, So when you put that up against journalism, that is a nuisance for business. It kind of feels to me like the business interests and the business side seems to have won. Is that your reading of it? I mean, I think that most mainstream media organizations are oriented towards business coverage for the simple reason that it's much easier to find business people and, you know, business organizations that are available and willing to talk to you. Like they have a whole setup to to facilitate that. It's much harder to find a new Canadian who doesn't speak English as a first language who's working as a temp in a warehouse. Um, so they're challenging stories as journalists to cover I mean, I, I don't work in a newsroom where I feel like my beat is a nuisance to business interests. I feel like I work in a newsroom where this is part of our DNA, like this has been part of what we do since the paper started in 1892. So I think I'm really lucky to have that backing. And again, like you say, I, I don't think it's necessarily antagonistic. A lot of, I mean, after I wrote, Brendan and I wrote the Fiera story, I had a lot of business owners get in touch and say, this is unacceptable. I had one guy actually um, who was a a business consultant say, I I printed out the story. I took it down to Texas to a factory where I'd been consulting with that used temps. And I said, you have to stop. And they did. They changed their whole HR system. You know, there's a lot of people in the business community that, that would find these practices really unacceptable. And, um, and I think there's a lot of folks out there who, who want an even playing field. That kind of impact, first of all, is extraordinary. Um, and of course, there's so many businesses that would be so incensed that um, someone else would, you know, use an opportunity to sort of just like exploit people. Uh, but from from where I'm standing, it feels like newspapers are just a bit more interested in the, the business side of the conversations. 
um, and making a little bit less room for labor. And mm-hmm. so I'm wondering how that changes how we view what a business is or what what even what work is. Yeah, I think that I think that's a super important point because yeah, you're right. Workers' issues do tend to get short shrift. And I think that really does shape the conversation. And I think it's actually really interesting to talk to business owners who have been around for a long time and have seen the way that our expectations as a society of business has changed. You know, businesses used to be seen as an important member of the community, somewhat like organizations that were creating jobs and capital and everything, but they were also creating social capital. They were um, giving back to the community. There is sort of a a sort of moral compass there, I guess. And I think um, those expectations have changed. It's sort of more about the bottom line. And we ask less of businesses in terms of their their role in in our communities. Maybe a business owner would have a different perspective, but that's certainly a conversation I've had with business people who have been around for a long time, that there's been a sort of shift in the narrative. And I and I think that um, making space for workers to contribute to that conversation wherever you want to end up falling on it is, is important um, for us as a society to do. Now, one thing you've uh, you've been covering closely is precarious work uh, and the gig economy, the struggles of people trying to get secure work and then trying to fight for protections in uh, an economy that is just like not set up for that. How do you fight for worker protections when your workforce is so disparate and your boss is an app? Yeah, that's the I think that's the kind of million dollar question for a lot of young people in particular who are working in the gig economy. Um I mean, it's really a whole new way of working that I think policymakers haven't really caught up with because, you know, I think obviously as a society, we want to embrace innovation. Um, We want to harness the good parts of it, but it's had a real impact on the kind of life that you can expect as a worker. Your access to benefits to a pension to these things that we used to consider standard in in a job. Um, How do you organize? I mean, I think the internet is also, it's part of the problem, but it's also part of the solution in a way. Like I think young people are a lot more like networked and organized than they used to be. And you're kind of seeing that in things like the Young Urban Workers Project that we have in Toronto that kind of connects people digitally who are working in the gig economy. So I guess organization is the key thing. Um, and, and as a reporter, it's interesting to kind of chart how that's happening. How do you think the reporting on the gig economy is going so far? I think that there was actually, I think, a study done on this that looked at how many times workers and worker issues are actually mentioned when reporters are covering things like Uber the answer was like almost never. It's always about, you know, the consumer experience or, you know, the business side of things. Um, And the systemic issues that result in those workers not having access to certain rights, like their legal status as an independent contractor rather than an employee, you know, really digging into that, you know, it affects a lot of us. So I would say to journalists, find a way to make it interesting and write about it. 
Sarah, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. That is your Canada Land. I can be found on Twitter at Elamine88, and we are on Twitter at Canada Land. Like us on Facebook and you will get our news stories in your feed. You can also go to our website at CanadaLandShow.com. This show was produced by Ali Graham. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.